Welcome back to Wellness Inc. I'm Dr. Mike Moreno, taking a deep dive into all things wellness after over 25 years of practicing medicine. I'm fascinated with anything and everything that can help you feel better, live healthier, and become the best you possible. I'll be interviewing the most cutting edge experts in the field of wellness and exploring new innovative technologies to help you live your best life. At the end of each episode, I'll give you my weekly RX, my top tips for you to use right away. Remember to subscribe for free, rate and review my podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Today, I'm talking with a leader in her field who came to the forefront by creating a solution to what turned out to be an all too common problem. In need of mental and emotional healing, she found traditional answers were just not helping her stay better. So, like every true hero, she got down to work and figured it out, generating tools and insights that address mental and emotional problems in a holistic and integrated way creating her own path to personal development that others now walk with her. The inspiring clinical psychologist, Dr. Nicole LaPera, the holistic psychologist is here with me to share her story, her tools and insights into lasting and true personal healing. Hello. Hello, Dr. Mike. Thank you for having me. Listen, I'm so excited because everything that you do is a very much a scaffolding of how I manage a lot of the medical problems that I see. I feel like sometimes we just keep doing these things that we've done and they're not working yet. We just keep doing them and it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I think part of it is, you know, we try, I think we have good intentions, right? But uh, you took this to a whole new level and said, okay, stop for a second. Let me figure out how this can work. And, and this is a very, very big issue. So um, you share your life in your book, how to do the work about everything and how you grew up. So let's start with that. Give us your story and how you grew up and how this sort of created the foundation for the work you're doing. Absolutely. So as long as I, I can remember um, quite intuitively, I was really, really fascinated with people. Um, what made people appear and behave similarly to myself, and of course, what made people different. Um, so in college, I was a declared psychology major, and I was marching forth on the journey to become a clinical psychologist with the intention of helping people understand themselves better um, to, of course, help to create healing around whatever it was that they were struggling with. On the personal side of things, um, I'm someone who very much had an anxious childhood, was afraid of bumps in the night, afraid of the latest health crisis um, that would fall um, upon my family. And anxiety really hit its peak for me in my 20s when I had my first of many panic attacks. So been on both sides um, of, of the couch, if you will, becoming <laughs> a practitioner who had uh, the practice in Philadelphia at the time. And of course, coming through the system myself as a patient. And what I started to realize, Dr. Mike, several years in, is that not only did I remain incredibly stuck, like you said, <laughs> knowing better and not doing better, I saw my patients cycling in that same way, incredibly insightful sessions. And I'll speak from my own lived experience of this, sometimes the most frustrating place to be, ever increasing insight, yet that inability to actually use that insight 
in our day-to-day life to create change. So from a really low disempowered place in my own um, personal experience of life, having checked all the boxes, having the successful practice, the partnership, living in a city of my choice, yet internally feeling really empty, really unfulfilled. And of course, then seeing similar patterning in my patients, I sought to understand why. Um, And what I really began to understand is how incompletely the psychological field, and I I imagine you probably feel similarly in terms of the medical system, (laughs) are working with a lot of these diagnoses. Um, We are trained in so many ways to treat like a Band-Aid instead of really understanding what is driving a lot of our symptoms. And if you ask me, I'm of the belief that there are imbalances in our bodies, in our emotional um, bodies and in our ways of being that are causing our stuckness, despite, again, ever increasing insight. First of all, I was sitting in the couch yesterday. I see my therapist on Tuesdays (laughs) religiously. 21 years, I've been seeing the same woman. It's funny. We get into it every now and then. But she has, to her, you know, to her defense, she's, she's given me a lot of tools, but I totally get what you're saying. And I relate to that in medicine. You know, we talk so much now about diet, nutrition, and and foods. We, you know, I went to medical school 30 years ago. We didn't learn anything about that. It was like, okay, apples and apples and oranges are good. Uh, Red meat is bad On to the next subject. So I, in a way there's a, there's sort of like a synonymous kind of relationship to what you're saying, which is we, we kind of go through and we march down this pathway, but it's like, hold on a second. And this is a lifelong struggle. And, and I think, you know, we deal with stress and identity and, and all of these things. And, and a lot of it comes from just, you know, how we were raised and so many things. And, you know, interesting, and I'd love to get your take on this, but I worked with Dr. Vincent Felitti for many years, who was the creator of the ACE study, um, which the adverse childhood events is so much about what you're talking about, right? Like that foundation, where did we come from? Why do we make decisions the way we do? Why do we think in this manner? And I think so for so long, we've dismissed that part of our lives and it's very hard to progress. And so it's interesting to me. Now you trained at Cornell. Well, you're a Philly person. I went to, uh, I'm I'm a Drexel person. So old school. I love Philly. Not, not so fond of the weather, but, um, (laughs) and I I know you trained at Cornell university, um, where this was more cognitive behavioral therapy that was taught. Like, when did the light go off for you where you're like, hang on a second, this is not as robust. You know, you obviously came from it. It's always nice to come from a place where you can really relate and relate things to yourselves. I think it just makes you more effective in your profession. So how did that work? Like when did this green light go off in your head? Uh, It didn't, it didn't go off uh, immediately. And so through Cornell, through the new school for social research, where I received my PhD and then through outside opportunities, I really sought to learn all different tool sets, all different ways of working. So even outside of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the gold standard typically um, in the field, I learned psychoanalysis. I learned interpersonal. I learned all different family systems work, all different theories um, with my intention being to give myself the full toolkit, um, understanding, I think intuitively that one size fits all modeling, this idea that cognitive behavioral work works for everyone always was a bit problematic for me. So I think that was, you know, it's kind of evidenced in my seeking to learn very comprehensively or so I thought 
every model of working with a human so that when I had a complex human in front of me, I could begin to apply the principles that worked. However, like I said, it wasn't immediate. Um, I opened up my practice. Um, it became very successful really quickly. So I had the clients who were signing on week after week, now year after year. And it wasn't until several years in um, because I felt like I was an integrative you know, therapist who had all the tools and you weren't going to just get CBT from me through the manual. I knew that there had to be more to that. Right. Yet I was missing a big glaring um, part of the human experience, what I came to realize, which is the human body and all of the imbalances and dysregulations, particularly around our nervous system, um, that could have a role in keeping us stuck. And largely that was left out of any of the learning that I was doing. And like I said, it was a gradual questioning descent, if you will, into what I understand now retrospectively, of course, being my dark night of the soul, um, when my very conditioned way of being, all of the adaptations that worked for me at one point to manage this overwhelming anxiety was no longer working. Um, my soul, if you will, was screaming out, living out of alignment, and my body was so stuck in a state of dysregulation that for me, like my clients, no amount of positive thought no amount of reframing and practicing a new mantra was able to create change because right. I was actually up against right my body that right. was sending messages of that dysregulation, my conditioned way of being. Here's the onion analogy. Every way I showed up in the world day in and day out, I came to realize wasn't actually serving me and my wholeness, wasn't serving my physical body, was keeping me in that dysregulation. Um, and wasn't giving me the opportunity to actually heal. So again, it was very gradual questioning that really diving into literature on the body, on the nervous system, on nutrition and the role our gut plays communicating Huge to our role. brain. Opened up. I should mention, first of all, learning about the science of epigenetics, this fact that we're not genetically doomed as so many of us thought was my first, for me, foundational shifting, shaking. Because for a very long time, my beliefs... Whereas I was taught that my genetics determined everything from the medical and psychological diagnoses that I would have later in life to my personality. And I had evidence of it, Dr. Mike, because I saw it in my family and I saw it in my clients and in their lineages. So I, like many of us, had no reason to question. And when I began to question, when I began to understand that, yeah, our genetics are part of the story, right. we're not as powerless as we want. So for me, that was the, that the destabilizing of my foundation that actually then allowed me to rebuild, to then question, okay, how do I create change? Of course, then I dropped in understanding the body's role and so forth. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, you know, I've talked to several people about diet and, and a lot of people, to your point, they say, oh, well, genetically we have heart disease in our family. So whatever. I'm like, no, well, yeah, you can't discount that. You can't like, you know, splice your gene and get rid of your parents and your grandparents or whatever, maybe eventually. But, you know, when you look at the idea of a plant-based or a plant forward diet, the reversal in terms of cardiovascular disease, in terms of carcinogenics and cancers, it's real evidence. So I think it's a it's important to realize that. And what I love that you said, I love, is that you destabilized and rebuilt. That is such an important, I mean, it's a beautiful statement. 
I think you retrofitted in a sense your being, right? Mental, physical, spiritual, whatever it is, you retrofitted it so that you can now go out and say, okay, now I can handle a 10.0 earthquake in my life, figuratively speaking. But I love that idea. You know, I mentioned that I, I worked with Vince Felitti and Vince discovered back in the 80s, I believe, the ACE score, which the ACE study that did adverse childhood events. And it is still widely utilized, widely accepted, and Vince still travels all over the world. Um, but a very powerful tool that explains a lot about why we do or behave in the way we do. So I want to ask you for a second. Change is difficult. Even good change can be difficult, you know, good to bad, bad to good, whatever. Change is just difficult. So, you know, what are the factors that go into us? Why do we struggle so much with change? And tell us a little bit about that, because I'm sure a lot of people listening are like, yeah, change is one of the most. I mean, everything can be easily set out. But the fact that you're changing, no matter how well it is and, you know, well laid out, it's a struggle. So why is that? The reason why we're we're stuck, um, as far as I see it, is actually imprinted, if you will, on us evolutionarily, and it lives in our subconscious mind. So, unbeknownst to, to to the large majority of us, many of us are living from probably terms that might listeners might be familiar with from our autopilot, um, from those kind of memorized habits and patterns that are typically the first thing we do when we wake up. The thoughts we think um, throughout our day we're very habitual. Um, and so our subconscious is actually governed by what we could call the familiarity principle, which really just means that which is familiar, the path I've traveled before is right. known enough to me that it's safer than the, the unknown, than the path unto, into an uncertainty where, where I don't have the gift of knowing what could happen next with high likelihood. Now, this is where listeners, this is where we are very counterintuitive because I'm sure so many of us have all of the litany of negative, you know, after effects of our choices that aren't so favorable. However, again, familiar just means I've been here before and our subconscious really doesn't like the uncertainty. So as humans, we're not actually create it. Um, we don't like to change. Anytime <laughs> we venture into a new habit, we entertain a new thought, we give ourselves a new experience in life. At the surface, it challenges our subconscious, that pull to be back into that familiar because it's frightening to be in this new space. Even if it's going to you know, advance us to the future that we would like, it's still new. So we create, we have a resistance um, at our core to staying in those familiar ruts. God, you're touching on so many nerves. <laughs> like, I mean, I think that that whole idea and the world we now live in is so complicated and there are so many things going on. Gravitating towards the norm and what we're used to is the easiest way, right? It's like when you're being bombarded with all of this stuff going on, you know, and Zoom is a beautiful thing, but, you know, it enables you and I to communicate and to sort of share experiences here. But when you look at email, cell phone, oh, here's a second cell phone. Here's a text. Oh, I emailed you. Oh, I sent you a, a message on Teams. I'm sorry, but I'm I'm full in terms of the way that you're going to get a hold of me. But there's so much going on. 
that you kind of just at least, you know, I'm speaking for myself. I just came from my therapist yesterday. So I think I'm reloaded and ready to deal with life. My thing is like, I just get so caught up in so much stuff going on. A lot of which you don't have control over that. You're like, okay, the one thing I do know is how I'm going to go from point A to point B now. And I'm just, you know, I'm being trivial about that. But when you expand that to a bigger, more, you know, impactful part of our lives and, and, and success or not, that's relationships and, and profession. I mean, that sucks. It, it's a safe place. And even to your point, you said, even if it's going to advance you, it's easier to take something you're familiar with, you know, and I, I don't, I, I don't know. How do you get someone past that? Here we are. This here's my this is all about me now <laughs> because I'm like I'm so fascinated with this cuz change sucks quite honestly. It sucks. Yeah. But That's why? And there's there's two two ways if it's easier Dr. Mike. The first is calorically. Um, our brain expends less calories when we're when we're uh, living from that autopilot. Our conscious mind, our prefrontal cortex actually is more calorically um, expended. We need to give more of our nutrients to our brain, which already needs the most of our calories. So we calorically desire that autopilot because it's easier and, because when we begin to enter into new territory, when we begin to maybe reconnect with our physical bodies, maybe introducing ourselves to all of the emotions that have been living within those bodies, maybe we're challenging our way of being in the world. For a lot of us, that means being uncomfortable. It means becoming witness to, for some of us, things that we have hidden and tucked away out of protection for a very long time. So the, the pathway, the journey of transforming of healing does come with actual emotional difficulty outside of just the caloric expenditure. It's hard to look at some of these habits and patterns in the face. Uh, it's, it's hard painful. to begin to embody <laughs> new experiences, right? And show up differently and watch the world change around us, even if it's in the direction that we're interested in, because a lot of us have gotten so protective, right, of our onion, that when we begin to peel back those layers, it's incredibly emotionally challenging as well. Yeah, it's exhausting. And, and, you know, and and I'm not trying to make light of anything, but for example, and my girlfriend gives me a hard time all the time because we go out to a restaurant, a restaurant that I'm familiar with. I order the same thing. <laughs> I would have said, you know, uh, yeah, I'm going to have this and I'm going to have the salad this way. And she just kind of looks at me now. She doesn't give me a hard time. She doesn't, but she's always like, it's okay to try something different. But I'm like, now, and here's how my mind thinks. And again, you can expand this to more, you know, prominent elements in our lives, but it's like, okay, but I know this, I've had this a hundred times. I know how it's going to come out. I know when it's going to come out. I know I'm going to enjoy it. I don't want to take a chance of not having a good dinner. And it's, it's exhausting almost to go through this process. And obviously I don't do, well, maybe I do, I don't know, but I am so afraid of change that and I think many people can relate to this. This isn't just about me. I think it's it's an exhausting thing. And it's almost kind of a contradiction in terms because it's easy because it's easy, but then it's exhausting to step outside of that circle that, you know, oh, maybe I'll try this dressing on my salad. And again, I'm using that as an example, but, you know, it's maybe I'm going to try a different angle in my profession. Maybe I'm going to try a different approach to, handling my grief or, or my relationship, maybe what I've been doing and unsuccessfully doing needs to be changed despite I'm comfortable with that. So 
how do you lead us across that river? I mean, you know, get, get me across the other side because I like being on this side. I don't want to get eaten by an alligator as I cross this river. Well, you brought up something important here, Dr. Mike, which is grief, um, allowing space for that shedding, which for a lot of us does mean space to grieve aspects of ourself, identities that we once wore very close to heart. For some of us, it's the only identity that we knew, the only role we knew to play. Um, we are not comfortable with more fully expressing or with showing up differently yet. Um, and as we shed that old way of being, that old way of thinking, whatever it is that we're shedding, we actually are grieving along the way. So my, my, my offering here is twofold. Um, the first thing I want to do is normalize all of this. The reason why I talk about why stuck happens, why it's so hard to change and why change is inherently uncomfortable is to normalize, to speak to the person who, as many of us do, have been maybe, you know, imagining that we're broken or that we're not worthy of this different future because we continue to experience ourselves stuck in this past. So to that person, um, I want to normalize why change has been hard historically, um, why it does feel exhausting and why for probably a lot of you, there is fear of what does happen next and can I handle it? Um, so the normalization piece, I think, is an important thing to acknowledge, as well as the second suggestion is to hold space for whatever comes up as you begin to witness the layers of your conditioning and the impact that it has. And as you begin to witness change and transformation, because within that space for a lot of us, we are evolving out of old selves, of old roles, of old masks. We're pulling them off. And for a lot of us, that can be a mourning, um, a life. And for many of us, relationships as we once knew them aren't that way anymore. So making space for the entirety of the experience of transforming is important. Because I think a lot of us, when we intuitively know, oh, well, this direction I'm going in is what I want, we do try to suppress any negative reaction we might have. We might feel like, why should I be sad? I'm moving into something that's, you know, more fulfilling. Of course, we're going to be sad when life as we once knew it is changing. Anyone would be. Yeah. You know, it's interesting in, in the, over the course of three years, uh, I went through a divorce, my mother, and then my sister died. And it was like three punches in the face. And I remember talking to my therapist about this. And she said, when she, she equated the loss of my life, although she didn't pass away, you know, she did figuratively in my life, but she expressed that she said, you know, you're mourning of the loss of somebody, although they're physically there at first, I was like, well, that's, that doesn't, you know, didn't resonate with me, but then as things happened with my mother and then my sister, I was like, it was the same feeling that I was feeling yet for different reasons. And I, it was this aha moment that, that came to me. And I, I, I love what you said to about, you know, making space to transform. And one of the things I tell my patients is when you have an old wet sponge in the sink and you need to clean a mess, sometimes you got to wet that sponge. You got to wring it out and make room for what else has come your way. And, and I do this a lot with diet and, and I mean, we could go on and on. I could talk to you for like 20 hours. Um, I, you know, I do this a lot with my patients. They're like, well, I'm eating healthy. I'm like, before you eat healthy, 
let's cleanse the body. You know, before you can absorb all these minerals and nutrients and all this goodness that you're trying to bring into your body, you got to make room for it. You have to really wring that sponge of life out. It's okay. You know, there are things, like you said, our lives evolve and they change. And I think a lot of us maybe harbor guilt and thinking, how can I dismiss this? It's such a, you know, traumatizing thing, you know, but you, you have to kind of move on in a sense. And I, I don't know that I like that term move on because I think there's a little heartlessness to it. I think some of us feel guilty almost that we're like, I can't move past this. It, it would make me a bad person. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think this comes up a lot too, Dr. Mike. I see when, as we evolve and perhaps the relationships of people around us aren't shifting and changing in the same direction um, that we're evolving in, I think a lot, and I'll speak for myself, I had a lot of guilt um, as I've changed the dynamics of past relationships, as I've you know removed myself entirely from some and shifted others. I felt a survivor's guilt in a lot of senses, like, yeah. oh, I got out. My life looks like this. And I think very naturally, a lot of us want to you know throw the life, the life raft back and come on with me. It's right over here. And when we don't have that reaction, because you'll often hear me always talk about how healing is a personal choice, how every day we have to show up in service of our needs and no one else can do that for us. So I say all that to say again, that a lot of feelings come up as we shift, as we change, as we observe whether or not others are shifting and changing in the direction that we're going in. Um, and a lot of guilt can come with the journey of changing. Yeah. I, I think guilt is such a bad feeling. It's such a nasty feeling. And I, you know, I, one of the things I tell my patients, I have so many patients that give, give, give right to their significant others, their loved ones, their kids, their family, their friends, and they don't take care of themselves because they feel guilty. And I'm like, hold on a second. You have to be selfish on some level in order to be the giving person, the giving individual you are physically, spiritually, supportive wise, whatever it is. So I think we need to recognize, and you just said this, it's about helping yourself and about supporting change that you need to stabilize you as an individual so that you can be there for those, those individuals. Yes. And I don't think until we are fully authentic to ourselves and our own needs, are we able to show up in service of others? We might be showing up with others. Um, I became, I was very much modeled this idea of selflessness by giving to others by having a mom who always seemingly put the children, everyone else first. Right. Um, and again, allowing her needs to go unmet and having lived that journey for, for quite some years and seeing, witnessing other people for even more, what I came to see is that while in the immediate, we think we're being selfish by pushing our need aside to show up for some, to serve someone else's, what happens over time is unfortunately we become very resentful of that person. Whether or not we're directly going to tell them or not indirectly, we don't like having to show up constantly. And we actually, on some deep level, blame them as opposed to looking at the role we have played. If we don't identify our needs and seek to get them met um, through relationship or through any way, we can't hold someone else responsible for not having held the space for our need in that relationship. So that's when we have to, while immediately it might feel selfish and all the things to acknowledge our needs, it's actually in service of our relationship long-term. I feel like I'm sitting in my therapist's couch because I'm, I've always been, you know, I like you, what brought me into medicine and in particular family medicine, I love people. 
I'm interested in what makes this person smile, laugh, and 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 you know, it's a fascinating thing. And you know, I again, my girlfriend makes fun of me because I'll go sit at a restaurant and I'm always like the guy that sits at the bar and eats dinner by myself. And I and you know, it doesn't always happen, but quite often people will sit next to you and they'll start to kind of give you your their story. And I find them fascinating. And and I don't know, maybe this is just my weird mind, but I think to myself, what brought this person here tonight? You know, what are they going to do when they leave? And what is their life like? And, and, and that to me, every interaction, a perfect stranger or someone I've known all my life, it still sort of stimulates this, this idea in my head. And I'm curious. It sounds like, you know, I see your accolades and all of that you do. And it's amazing to me, but you seem like a curious person and thank God for your curiosity that created what you do that helps so many people. I mean, honestly, wholeheartedly, it's people like you, you just, people need you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for, for acknowledging that. And interestingly, I've had to almost reverse engineer my healing in so many ways, because what I came to find Dr. Mike is I spent so much time curious about others, about their needs, about how I could fit into their puzzle. And I had been overstepping the, the step around me around what I need in any given moment. So I almost, I think as a lot of us do, showed up overly empathetic in service, only worrying about what someone else needed of me in any given moment. So my actual journey back to myself was creating the space to have those check-ins to say, what do I need right now? And what am I capable of offering someone else before I go into what my autopilot once was, which was that straight service doesn't matter. Who cares what I need um, in any given moment? So that curiosity absolutely became, I think, the channel for this work, for my understanding, for my ability to communicate it. Though in the lived experience, my work behind the scenes is hitting that pause, is actually saying, before I go and offer myself to someone else, let me check in with myself. Yeah. See if I'm available if my needs are met in this moment so that I can show up in service to someone more fully. So I want to finish with something that, um, you know, I was anticipating talking to you um, and, you know, just looking and researching, looking at what you've done. And, and there's one thing that I struggle with and I still struggle with. And I mean, listen, I'm an open book and I, my patients know I see I go to a therapist every week and, I, you know, da, 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 da. I think we need to be open to to getting that insight. But what I struggle with and I think many do is we worry about tomorrow. We worry about a week from now, a month from now, a year from now. And so many people are like, oh, you know, I got to put away, you know, I talked to my brother last night. I'm like, yeah, he's a doctor as well. I'm thinking about this and thinking about that. And I'm like, my life is much more simplistic than his because, you know, he has, you know, kids and all this stuff and, you know, all these things. But we think so much about the future and, and, like, how do I, how do we turn that off or how do we make it not be so damaging to our souls and, and, and how we proceed in life? So many of us, I think, do have that. And I can resonate very much so with this future orientation. Um, and again, a lot of us, that's our practice focal point is not now, it's the future. So all the conversation we had, becoming aware that we spend most of our attention on this future time, and then obviously refocusing it, learning how to be consciously present to the moment is the action. 
we actually have to teach our mind not to always look toward that future what if scenario um, becomes a mental exercise, refocusing on what's here, what's now, what can I focus my attention on to break that habit. When we dive or drive down into what that habit is, many of us are, are gifted with the awareness that a lot of times we focus on a future as an attempt to control. To control, again, at one point, what's what might have at one point, I should say, have felt overwhelming. Um, this idea, again, if I can predict this future, I can somehow keep myself safe if and when it happened. And very beautifully, the whole conversation we've been talking about, empowering ourselves personally, um, being able to drop in and learning how to tolerate, you know, whatever is happening in the moment actually is the work of serving that future moment. When we can develop confidence in our own selves, in our ability to be present and to navigate our moments, moment to moment, we're actually gifting ourselves with the resilience to deal with that unknown future that we right. predict. So identifying that for a lot of us, it's our mental exercise. It's an attempt at control, maybe thanking it for its service. Um, for me, focusing on this future allowed me to have some grasp of control at a time where I felt very powerless, very out of control. However, I've matured. I'm living in a new circumstance. I have new relationships around me, all of whom that can offer me support. So now I have to teach my human, my adult self, this new right experience right. of being supported, of not needing my mind to anticipate all of the what ifs and being able to just stay grounded and present, knowing confidently that I could open the door to tomorrow and it could be a giant pile of what if craziness and I could walk through that <laughs> right. safely and support it. Um, and again, that's something that we have to teach ourselves the experience. So for many of us, that just means the beginning part of it means removing that focal point from the natural tendency to focus on the future. And then of course, doing the deeper work to create the security, to create the resilience, to cur curate the ability to, to, to take control now. You know, there's a, uh... It's interesting. Never before has the term mind, mindfulness been more prevalent in our lives, right? I think that the words of the decade, perhaps the century, will be mindfulness and resilience. I'm like, <laughs> I've, I'm, you know, I'm done. I'm tapped out. But man, I could just talk to you forever. I, selfish reasons, <laughs> but um, I, I can't thank you enough. I mean, you, what I love about you is I think you take what can be very complicated and quite honestly are very complicated things, but you break them down into palatable small bites. And I think that allows us to chew this food and to swallow it and to absorb it. And I think a lot of us are, um, are just, you know, asking for this. So let's talk a little real quickly about how to do the work. I mean, this is where it's all at. I know, I, I know I'm I'm going to be reading this probably several times. So give us give us a little bit of insight to that. Absolutely, I, I appreciate you acknowledging. Um, what I'm hearing is the practicality, Dr. Mike, because I've always um, understood that a lot of these concepts do feel far out there, have only been read in a book, haven't really been like I was referencing earlier, translated into what does this look like in my day to day, and how can I utilize these concepts to create change and. I'm honest, from when I created the Instagram account um, over two years ago, um, I understand that it took off very quickly because of that reason, in my opinion, because what was being talked about was very universally resonating. And again, it was being talked about in a way that was understandable. And for me, that's really meaningful because like I said, that helps us to build that bridge. 
um, where things can not just remain now in a book, a great concept in theory. I really am interested in actualizing and creating change around these very important tools. So in the book, of course, I outline um, what holistic healing looks like. Um, I talk a lot in the beginning about the foundation of consciousness, like we've been talking about understanding how to fire up that very powerful prefrontal cortex where consciousness lives, gifting us with choice so that we can begin to break some of those older habits and patterns that are, again, living in that subconscious mind. Then, of course, the journey of the book will take us through deeper levels of healing, understanding what habits and patterns that many of us are housing in that subconscious um, I call that space, the realm of our inner child, um, where a lot of our old, old wounding and all of the very adaptive ways we've to our best, you know, attempt, tried to tolerate these very difficult environments, again, unpacking what those wounds are for each of us. And then through the process of reparenting, which is how can I show up now as an adult each and every day in a new way to better identify and care for my needs again in my physical realm in my emotional and in my spiritual. So that is kind of an overview, a bird's eye view of the work. Of course, each of our individual journeys of healing looks a bit different. Um, though, in my opinion, once we become conscious, once we see and witness ourselves in real life, we can begin to see the areas that we're stuck. We can begin to identify the older stories, habits, and patterns and coping tools that are no longer serving us. So like I said, consciousness is the foundation that helps us actualize change, actualize the ability to actually begin to create a future that looks different from the past that so many of us have been repeating. Yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, I think this book is something we could have used for hundreds of years. <laughs> I'm glad it's uh, available. Um, and never is it more needed. We have some incredible destabilization that has occurred in our lives. And uh, I think, as you alluded to, you know, rebuilding, it only makes us stronger um, and super important. And uh, I think, you know, I know you you balancing that that sort of whole idea of the body and the mind and, and reconnecting to really get down to, you know, why am I like this? And how do I, you know, from a subconscious level, and I think taking into account your childhood. So many people just say, oh, oh, well, yeah, you just get over it. It was just a tough thing. No, that's just not how it works. And I think um, you do it beautifully. And I, I think it's so, I, I can't, I, I'd love to have you back because we could do volumes two through 10 on this whole thing. Um, I, I really appreciate you sharing some time and your insight and uh, the book, How to Do the Work, has to be uh, something that everybody experiences. I, it's going to make you a better person. I, I, I mean, really, the way you deliver the information you deliver is so practical and so digestible. It's it's beautiful. So I thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you for carving out your time with me and everyone listening out there, Dr. Mike. I really appreciate it. And for all you're doing, all the conversations you're having in the world, um, again, to put out these stories that help, help, I believe, shape and evolve the collective. So thank you. Thank you so much. Where do we find you? Where can people find you? Because I, listen, this book, How to Do the Work is going to be one thing, but I think people can just benefit. I know you have like millions of Instagram followers. Some, <laughs> I mean, I know it's outrageous, which is well done. It just speaks to, to who you are and what you do. So, it, you know, sometimes when you see people 
who have achieved what you've achieved in terms of social media or whatever it is you want to say. It's just kind of like, well, duh. Yeah. Look what this person does and uh, look at how many people you're helping. So where can we find you? So the Instagram account um, where it all began, where I am still each and every day is the.holistic.psychologist. Um, the Instagram community of self-healers there is really important and will always be part of the work that I do because in my opinion, it, it is for many of us the equalized access point for so many of these um, profoundly important conversations. So the Instagram, like I said, each and every day, I talk about my own healing journey, sharing tools for each of your healing journeys. Um, I also have a website that just got revamped at yourholisticpsychologist.com um, that houses some free guided meditation. So even people out there who are not going to buy the book um, can make use of a couple meditations that I did record that will go along with content from the book. So if you have the book, definitely want to check out those as well as some free journal prompts. And then finally, a new YouTube channel. Um, we just finished season one and we're going to be rolling out season two in the next couple of weeks. Also the holistic psychologist. So lots of formats and ways to consume this content and this information. And again, I just want to thank everyone for having the time and having a listen to me this morning. Well, we can't thank you enough, um, Dr. Nicole LaPera. This is something we all need. God knows I do. And, um, you know, you're doing, you're doing amazing stuff. And, and I know the world, uh, you're making a better place because of it. So thanks again. Of course. Thank you. Bye-bye. And now for the weekly RX. And I'm going to bring in my producer, Laferne, to help us tease this out because there's a lot going on here. Laferne, I mean, let's help our listeners here. Oh, my goodness. What a great show. I, I was so inspired. <laughs> you know, she, I, what I love about her is she makes it doable. She makes you feel like, okay, I can, I get it. You know, so, so much of this is... It's, it can be a, a very like, you know, scary path for a lot of us. So I think she just made it feel like doable. Right. And especially what radiated with me was like her talking about fear. We, we all have fear if we're talking about the future and we're not in control of the future. And therefore, our mind goes to a place that is right. not controllable. And then we end up, you know, with anxiety and turmoil within ourselves. Yeah, no, you said it. I think it's when you feel like you don't have control of a situation. And I mean, honestly, how much control over do we have over our, our what's going to happen tomorrow? You know, there are certain elements of it we have control over, but you just don't know. And I think she very beautifully, you know, explained to us that if living for the moment today and our decisions now are what will help us get to tomorrow, and then when we get to tomorrow, those decisions help you get to the next day. So, yeah, she just made it. A, she made me feel confident, I think. Yes. Yeah. And how is how is that different from like your therapy? Uh, is it similar or? You know, it's it's actually very spot on. And, you know, one of the things I talk about with my patients is, you know, think about what you're doing now. Be in the moment. You know, we talk about mindfulness being in the moment now will help you make good decisions now. 
and likely good decisions now will lead to good outcomes later. So it's very much in alignment, congruent with what I tell my patients, you know, think about what you're going to make for dinner. Think about what you're going to buy at the grocery store. Think about what you're doing right now. And where is this going to lead you tomorrow or the next day? You know, am I going to exercise? Think about that, you know, that moment right now that, yes, I'm going to make this decision to do this. And, and eventually you start to develop just better habits, but it yeah. is sort of a reframing, you know, as she said, restate, you know, destabilize and rebuild. And I think that's a huge, huge take home from this. So, so huge. And um, I, I think that also fits in with your, your pillars of success. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and it's, I think the other thing is this is an ongoing process. You know, we are constantly evolving and learning and changing and making, you know, our, our lives better, but it's, uh, you don't just get to the finish line, you know, we're constantly doing it. And I think tools like what, uh, Dr. LaPera gave us are just so understandable. And, and again, I think they're just, they can really create a very basic, but yet strong foundation for, for moving forward. Yeah. And then the last thing I want to say is uh, a great key takeaway was be kind to yourself. (laughs) Yes. We're constantly beating ourselves up about things that we don't need to. Yeah. She made that point where like a lot of times we do make decisions to help somebody or do something. But if we're not in a good place ourselves, sometimes our good intentions may not be as great as we had intended them (laughs) to be. So, uh, yeah, you know, go easy on yourself. Yeah. You know, life's tough and uh, we can use all these little nuggets of coaching and advice along the way. And uh, really, really amazing guest. Well, um, I would really want to uh, encourage the audience to reach out to you. And if they have any questions about this episode or any comments, please do so. It's it's important to have like that community. Yeah, we need to know. And and we want to know what people think and, and what uh, we can bring them that, that will uh, spark more interest. Because, uh, listen, we're just we don't know everything. Right. Laferne? Yes. We're just try- we're just I mean, we we think Rolling we do, up. but we don't. We're just trying to ha- we're just trying to help the masses here. Yes. So uh, ourselves included. I mean, selfishly, yes. all of these shows, I, I always within three minutes, I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, you know, so, <laughs> they, uh, you know, I'm a mess. But uh no, You're it's, perfect. it's, it's, it's awesome. She's, she was great. And, uh, man, a lot to learn there. Yes. Well, congratulations. This was great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, of course, you know, don't forget to subscribe for free, download and listen to wellness Inc with me, Dr. Mike Moreno on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen and follow me on social at the 17 day diet and at stage 29 podcasts. How could I forget that? (laughs) Yes. At stage 29 podcasts as well. I should have said that first. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast has been produced by stage 29 productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice. The use of any information provided during this podcast is at the listener's own risk. For medical or other advice appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician or other trained professional. This podcast does not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed 
by the hosts and guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.